Well, apparently the First Kings uh, series has uh, turned some people away, huh? No. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start with prayer, and then uh, we'll dive into First uh, Kings 18, I think is a familiar and yet a very fun story that we get to see tonight. Um, so let's go ahead and pray before we get started, though. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that we have uh, both good and bad examples as we look at the scriptures so we can learn from both without having to make the same mistakes and can be encouraged from good examples as well. We pray that you'd give us some insight and encouragement from a story that's familiar and, and therefore sometimes it's easy for us to just tune out the details and miss some of the things you want us to see. Help us to be encouraged from it. Help us to be safe as we travel in this weather. Thank you for these uh, faithful believers who are here to, uh, because they love you and want to hear from your word. And pray that you would give them a, a blessing and encouragement this evening through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the, the real reason I imagine that people aren't here today is because uh, there's some kind of football game going on or something, right? Or, or the weather's bad, right? It's another possible reason, or just people aren't feeling well. We understand, but I wanted to focus for just a minute on, on this game um, so that I don't lose all of you, um, because I'm uh, assuming you're not going to be watching it during the service. Um, but um, there's this really big game, the football games between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Patriots, and uh, pretty evenly matched teams, and they've done really well throughout the year. Um, but uh, this Super Bowl is a huge contest between uh, these two teams that have worked all year, right, to get here, and it's a huge, huge contest that's watched by Millions, if not, uh, well, it's got to be millions. I don't think it's billions. I think World Cup soccer gets maybe half a billion, which is more than the Super Bowl ever gets. But lots and lots of people, right? It's a huge contest, right? People want to see this game, see who's going to win. Well, um, I don't know if you're into predictions, but Tech, Tecmo Sports, have you seen that? Uh, I'm, I'm giving Evan a hard time here. Uh, they predict the, the Eagles are going to win and beat the Patriots 10 to 6. And, and I might actually have a live feed from the game and its current status here. Let me see if I can bring that up. Oh, looks like in the second quarter it's already 23 to nothing. So no need to keep watching it from here on out, Evan. It's, it's, it's not working out this year. No. Um, technically, it hasn't started until 6.30. But um, the Super Bowl is a big contest, right? And... and I just want to draw your attention to a big contest because that's exactly what we have in 1 Kings 18 today, is a big contest. But the contest isn't over football. The contest is over who is truly God in Israel. Because if you remember the previous few weeks, we've been talking about Ahab and how Ahab and Jezebel are promoting Baal worship and they're trying to get rid of the worship of the Lord in Israel. But Elijah is God's prophet standing for him. And he told Ahab in the passage we looked at last week that it wasn't going to rain for three years or, or until he gave word that it was going to rain. And then basically he went into hiding and God provided for him. 
and also provided for a widow that we saw in chapter 17 in Sidon, which was the country where Jezebel came from. So God showed how even in Sidon, which was where Baal was worshipped, where Jezebel was from, it was barren there too. There was, there was a famine going on there as well because there was a lack of rain, even though Baal is supposedly the God that is bringing rain and storms and helping crops to grow. So we see a contest, though, that gets set up here in chapter 18. So let's uh, read through verses 1 through 6 first and see how the meeting is planned here between Elijah and Ahab. It says, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided up the land between them to survey it. Abraham, or I'm sorry, Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. So we have here the command to go from the Lord in verses 1-2 to Elijah. And the purpose of this command is that he's to go to Ahab. But notice a couple details real quick that are important to the story. Number one, there's, they're in the third year of the famine. There's been a famine um, already for three years, and uh, it's, it's a uh, famine that's so severe, as we saw, Ahab is looking for grass. Have you ever seen a summer that bad, where it was so dry, there was no living grass anywhere? Um, that's what he's saying here. There's no grass to give the animals, so they're, they're trying to find a place. But that's how bad the famine was. And so, Elijah is to go to Ahab, and the promise that God gives here is that he's going to send rain um, as a result of, of the things that happen in this meeting and what comes next. He's going to send rain. But the Lord is being very purposeful about the communications here because Ahab has been worshiping and promoting the worship of Baal, and Baal claims to be the fertility guy. They've said Baal is the fertility god. So he wants to make it very clear that God, the Lord God, controls the rain. And so Elijah is going to confront Ahab and make this very clear that it's God who's in control. So, a little side note. Look at uh, verse 2 at the very end. Uh, it says, Now the famine was very severe in Samaria. What's significant about Samaria? It's the capital of the northern kingdom, right? And that's where the prophets of Baal are residing. That's where Ahab built a temple for Baal, right? So right in the heart of fertility country, supposedly, it's very, very severe famine. So uh, just pointing out again, the Lord is the one who controls it, not Baal. Uh, because Baal isn't a real god. 
right? Baal is a false god, not really a god at all, as we're going to see very clearly. So I want you to see as well, though, contrasting kingdom workers. Notice the difference here between Ahab, who is the ruler of the kingdom, and Obadiah, who is the administrator over his household. We learned some interesting things about Obadiah. We know that King Ahab is the ruler of Israel. He's a wicked man, um, and he's interested in saving his animals. Notice he says, go find grass so we don't have to kill the cattle, right? But what have they been killing? They've been killing the prophets of the Lord, right? But he's worried about animals, so that's uh, obviously a very uh, wrong view. Um, he's killing people, but preserving animals is what he's worried about. But notice Obadiah in contrast. Obadiah, we're told, feared the Lord greatly, verse 3. He feared the Lord greatly. So King Ahab is worried about preserving his animals. Obadiah is preserving the Lord's servants, though. Notice that when Jezebel, verse 4, destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave and provided for them food and water. So we see Obadiah fears the Lord and is serving him by protecting his prophets when Ahab and Jezebel have been trying to kill them. So he's preserved these hundred people. Now I think this is significant because we're going to see Obadiah and Elijah interact here, uh, and we learn about Obadiah and his fear of the Lord. So we see how he is uh, different than King Ahab, and yet what's interesting is to think about how God works here. Who's in charge of the land of Israel right now? Ahab, right? Ahab and his, his wicked wife, uh, Jezebel, are, has a lot of influence, right? And they are promoting evil, and they're trying to kill the prophets, and yet this is also an indication of how God works sometimes. Sometimes he works very subtly behind the scenes. Sometimes he has a direct confrontation with evil like we see with Elijah going to Ahab, and sometimes he works quietly behind the scenes, preserving his people, as he does with Obadiah. So interesting to see how the Lord works. We, we encounter evil in our day and age as well, and sometimes it gets really discouraging. I don't know about you, but I remember, uh, especially right before the elections that we just had, I remember just being overwhelmingly discouraged about the state of our nation and how wicked it was and the, the rulers that we have and it's so corrupt and not that it's gotten all better but um, the election was a surprise um, and some of the things that have happened have been a surprise but God is at work even when we don't see in the public realm everything going the way we want it to God was at work here preserving the lives of a hundred people through a servant of his Obadiah and we wouldn't know that or wouldn't have been known other than that had been written uh, and revealed to us. So God uses sometimes subtle behind the scenes people to do his work too. Um, we also are going to see here a contrast between some of the servants of the Lord and how he uses people as well. Now for time's sake, um, not because I'm trying to get Evan out of here or uh, get myself out of here, but we have 46 verses tonight, so um, these verses are ones I think I'm just going to uh, skim through here, um, but I just want to show you in verses 7 to 16 that basically what happens is Elijah, at the command of the Lord, 
is going to set up a meeting with Ahab, and he does that through Obadiah, the servant of the Lord. Um, so we see in verses 7 and 8 how they meet. It says, Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? He said to him, It is I. Go say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. Now, notice how Obadiah initially objects to this. Look at uh, verse 9. He says, what, what sin have I committed that you are given your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? So Obadiah's, what, what do you mean i got to go tell Ahab that you're here? So basically his point is, Ahab has been looking for you all over the planet, and as soon as I go and tell him that you're here, you're going to be taken away by the Spirit of the Lord, and Ahab's going to kill me because I'm teasing him about finding you. But basically Ahab says, I will meet him. You don't have to worry. Go and tell him. And so he agrees to do that. But look with me, uh, not only verse 9, but verse 12 and verse 14, how Obadiah keeps coming back to this theme, being afraid. It says, it will come about, in verse 12, it will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and cannot find you, he will kill me, although your servant has feared the Lord from my youth. Verse 14. And now you are saying, Go say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here, and he then will kill me. So we see Obadiah three times afraid for his life because Ahab's going to kill him when he says he knows where Elijah is and then can't find him. But Elijah promises to meet with him, verse 15, and Obadiah arranges the meeting, verse 16. Now, I would draw your attention again to a thought about how God uses different people again. Obadiah is secretly working to preserve the Lord's prophets and uh, keep them alive, as we saw. And he's also very fearful He's afraid of King Ahab and what will be done to him if he uh, takes him some news he doesn't like, right? So we, we could look at this and we could say that Obadiah is not trusting the Lord and is not being faithful to the Lord. But how, how does the scripture describe him at the beginning of this account? Before we even hear anything from Obadiah, we see in verses 3 and 4, that he feared the Lord greatly, and he did this, right? So I think the text is presenting Obadiah in a good way. And part of why I want to draw your attention to it is to think about how God has some men, some servants, some women who will have roles in serving him that will be public and will have great recognition and confrontation and all kinds of uh, amazing things will be done through those kinds of servants. And yet, he also has many servants who are timid, who are working behind the scenes, who do things for him that nevertheless are important and a part of what he's trying to do. So, I take that as a huge encouragement. That some of us may do great public things for the Lord that have wide recognition, and yet he's going to also use many people behind the scenes in roles that may seem insignificant to mankind,
but God sees. Uh, One person said it this way. I thought it was a great quote. He said, we're not called to great works, but good works. God intends for us to do things to serve him. And our part, our responsibility might be very small and hidden from the eyes of most people. And yet it's important because it's God's will for us. So, God uses different kinds of servants. Elijah, on the other hand, has a public, well-known ministry, has a very confrontational set of responsibilities and things he needs to do with Ahab. Um, and through him, are, we see some miracles happen that the average believer in the Lord never had a part of. But yet, both are important. God uses all kinds. In fact... More are the behind-the-scenes and not well-known people than are the well-known. So, looking then at verses 17 to 20, we're going to see how Ahab and Elijah meet. We have the two leaders meeting together, and notice the accusation that Ahab throws out right away in verse 17. It says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Now, isn't that ironic? And and this is so typical, right? Uh, Evil people call good evil and evil good, right? But uh, Ahab is accusing Elijah of all this trouble. The fact that they have no rain, the fact that there's famine, the fact that uh, they're having difficulty in the land because there's no, no rain or dew, Ahab is blaming Elijah, And yet, we see Elijah gives the accurate answer in response with a little more description, which is really helpful. Verse 18, he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. So what's the real source of the problem? The real source of the problem is their Baal worship and their refusal the refusal to obey the commandments of the Lord. That's the real problem. So then we also see an uh, audience is being requested here. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, it says, Now then send, and this is Elijah speaking, Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So basically... He's calling for all the people of Israel to be assembled. As many people in, in the nation of Israel that can come and be audience to this, he wants them there. And he wants all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. So um, he's asking for them to be assembled at Mount Carmel. And I guess the, the thinking is Mount Carmel was a place where they did Baal worship. So he's thinking, come together on your mountain where you do this false worship, and we're, we're going to have a contest. So we're going to set up a contest. In uh, and, and verse 20, we see that Ahab is compliant with this. He uh, arranges it and uh, makes it happen. Verse 20, it says, uh, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So they set it up. The battle is set. The contest is set. So let's see in verses 21 to 40 here, the match between the Lord and Baal. So the contest is being set up here. 
So notice that Elijah gets opportunity to speak to the audience here. Let's look at uh, verses 21 and 24 and what Elijah says to the people. It says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. So they're still unsure. <laughs> Verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Was that entirely accurate on Elijah's part there? No. I mean, we're told for one, Obadiah was hiding a hundred of them, right? Um, but we also see how the Lord answers Elijah later on where he says, I'm the only one left. And he's like, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, right? So um, a, little, um, a little bit inaccurate, but the idea, though, is he's going to have a contest, and in this contest, it's going to be just him versus the 450 prophets of Baal, and that is what they're going to do. So he, he says that's the plan. Verses 23 and 24 explains the plan. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, and, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, this is a good idea. So the contest is on. So here we have a contest. Now there weren't 100 million people watching, but there were probably a lot of people in Israel, don't know how many uh, made it out that day. We don't have statistics from that day, but it was a, probably a well-attended event, and we have a contest here between the Lord and Baal. They're going to set up sacrifices. Now normally when they would do sacrifices they would light the wood on fire themselves, right? That was part of the process. But in this case, they're calling upon their God to do the lighting of that fire so that they could see who's really God. All right, well, how does it go? Elijah lets them go first. He's going to let the prophets of Baal go first. He's already outnumbered, and yet he's going to give them first crack at it, right? It's their home, home mountain where they worship, I guess, and... He's going to let them go first. So they set up, verses uh, 25. What, what, let's see what happens there. Verse 25 says, So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourself and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So ver verse 26, Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they made. So they started the contest, right? They're calling out to Baal. Apparently he's busy or something, right? There's no answer. Morning till noon, we're not told exactly when they started. Um, but they go till noon, there's no answer. So we're assuming that's at least several hours probably by this point. There's no answer. But look how Elijah gives them a hard time. If you've ever wondered, see, I don't want to take this too far, but I think this is an indication the Lord has a sense of humor. Look what Elijah says to them. Verse 27, I'm going to try and break it down for you if you're not clear. He says, 
Um, verse 27. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. And he said, call out with a loud voice. Right? He's making fun of them. You know, maybe your God can't hear you. Call loudly. You're not calling loud enough. All right, what else does he say? For he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone outside or is on a journey. We have children in here, but I, I have to tell you what Elijah's actually saying is maybe he's going to the bathroom. That's what he's saying. Maybe he's occupied because he's using the restroom. That's, that's what he's saying. He's making fun of their God. Supposedly, he has attributes like a human being. He's limited like a human being. He's occupied because he's in the restroom. Or he goes on and he says, or perhaps he's asleep. How about that? A God who's sleeping and you need to wake up to get to answer you. Elijah's making fun of him. You see that? Now, why is it that Baal isn't answering? He's not a real God. There is no Baal. There's no such thing as Baal. There's no God. There's only one true God, right? And he's not Baal. And therefore, he's not going to answer them. So they go on. Um, and, and, and interestingly they actually listened to Elijah a little bit here. Look at verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice. They're taking his advice. Maybe he is sleeping. Maybe, maybe he is busy. We need to get his attention. They cry with a loud voice, and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. What's happening? They're losing. They're getting desperate. So they're taking desperate measures because they're not getting an answer. In verse 29, how does it end for them? It says, when midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. Why? Because Baal's not real. There is no such thing as a God named Baal. Doesn't exist. He's not a God. He's a false God. He is powerless because he doesn't exist. But we see here the answer from the Lord, verses 30 to 38. So let's see what Elijah does. Elijah, in verse 30, engages the audience. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people came near him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made... Okay, let's stop there. So what Elijah does, he, he engages the audience, asks them to come near so they can make sure that they're seeing what he's going to do. And what does he do? He repairs the altar. But remember where they're at in this point in history. Where is he? Yes, he's at Mount Carmel, but he's in the northern kingdom. What does he do in the repairing of the altar? He repairs it with 12 stones. What do those 12 stones represent? The whole tribe of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, right? So the right way to worship God is as one nation. See, the north has rejected the Lord. They've broken off. And 
he's pointing that out, that they've rejected the Lord, they've divided the nation, and are worshiping false gods here, and he's restoring this altar of the Lord and these stones as a symbol of the unity of the nation of Israel, which they should have but don't. And then he makes a trench. He tells us, we're told in verse 32, he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Well, does anyone know how big two measures of seed is? I'm not sure either. I don't know what a measure is, and I didn't look up the conversion. I'm sorry. So he builds a trench around it. What's the point? He's going to add water to the sacrifice. Look at verse 33 and verse 34. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. In verse 34, and, and, and he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, I have to stop you there. I, when I read this, it just shocks me. The king is searching over the whole land for grass. They're in a famine. And he has the audacity to take water that people need and waste it on the sacrifice. Now, I don't have a problem with Elijah. Of course, he's acting at the Lord's command, and this is all part of the point, and to demonstrate the Lord is the true God. But I'm shocked that there's not outrage about this. We need that water. What are you doing? But it's for a point to demonstrate the Lord is God. So he adds water. They do it. And he pours it on the burnt offering. And he said, do it a second time. Do it again. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Do we have any Boy Scouts in the room here? Samuel, are you a Boy Scout? Have you had to start a fire with two sticks? Okay, not, not that sophisticated. What do you know about fires and starting a campfire? What kind of wood do you need? Dry. In fact, um, we, we had some uh, vines that grew up in our, our old house, and uh, we had rented out, and the, the, the people that were living there let everything grow up. We practically had trees all over the yard we had to cut down. And we cut those down, and one of the things we, we did in the summertime was we bought a little portable fireplace, you know what I'm talking about, and you put wood in there, you burn stuff out in the yard. Well, that wood we cut up that first year, we couldn't really use. It didn't really burn because it had too much moisture in it. It was too wet. We had to wait a whole year before we could use that wood and, and, and that be good firewood because it had to dry out. Here is Elijah dousing his sacrifice with water, pouring water on it so wet that it's dripping out and it's filled up this trench around it. Now, humanly speaking, what would you say about that sacrifice? Humanly speaking, you'd have to say, there's no way that's going to catch on fire. No way. Well, and that's the point. Elijah then prays, verse 36 and 37. 36 and 37. It says, At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. 
And then uh, verse 37, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. What's different about Elijah's prayer and the prophets of Baal? personal, right? He's addressing God personally. He is a God who's had a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob, or Israel. He addresses very, very simply what he wants and is asking to happen. He is asking for knowledge. He's asking that the Lord would reveal that he is the God of Israel, and that's really the whole point of this. The God of Israel is the one and only true God. That's what he's demonstrating with all this. So Elijah has a simple prayer request, and that his goal then is, in verse 37, the people's heart to be turned back, in spite of the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, and all that they're doing to destroy the worship of the Lord. He's asking through this event that God is going to turn hearts back. And then verse 38, we have the answer from the Lord here. It says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and lit up the water that was in the trench. The Lord answered by fire. And it says the sacrifice was consumed, completely eaten up, destroyed. The Stones as well. Stones don't normally burn quickly, do they? Stones are consumed and all the water. What does water normally do? We use water to put out fire. But the water is consumed. This is a miracle demonstrating that God is the God of Israel. He is the one that deserves their worship. And how do the people then Respond. Notice the awe of the audience. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Has anyone ever been to a Super Bowl game? Evan, you've been to a Super Bowl game? You still, you're still paying attention, right? You're not watching the game. All right. I've never been to a Super Bowl game. Uh, there's a couple of Super Bowl games that I thought might have been really cool games to watch. Um, sadly, last year probably was one of them because it was a game in which the one team was down 28-3. 28-3, and you thought the game's over. And then they came back and win. And it wasn't overtime, wasn't it? First time there was over, ever overtime. I thought that would have been a great game to go at, especially if you're a Patriots fan, right? Um, there was another great game. The Rams played the Titans, if you remember that game. Um, and it was on the last play, the last second, the uh, Titan player was driving towards the end zone. I have this right, right? And the Titan player was essentially tackled and stopped right at the half-yard line or something, right before scoring the goal that would have won the game, and then that was it. Ended. Fantastic finish. A lot of them aren't that good. A lot of them are blowouts or it's not close or one side gets ahead and stays ahead and that's just the way it goes. But a couple of them would have been really fascinating, including the one last year. But imagine 
being in Israel and seeing this happen. Amazing. A miracle of God to consume that sacrifice against all odds. And, and you know what's interesting? In the grand scheme, this is a small thing. This is a small thing for what God can do. And yet God does this miracle, and it does have an impact on the nation. There are people that recognize He is God, and they are, at least for the moment, showing loyalty to Him. And, and look how they take out this loyalty, verse 40. Verse 40 says, Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So this is also a contest which ended pretty badly for the losing team. Um, they were wiped out. Now, we could look at this, and certainly in the New Testament, things are different. But in that day and age, God was the God of Israel, and there were laws about not worshiping other gods. In fact, in Deuteronomy 13, it talks about punishment due for people who do those kinds of things, and they're simply carrying out... Deuteronomy 13 here. God demonstrated that he is the true God and brought this great victory and these 450 prophets are wiped out. Amazing. Demonstrating that he is the true God. Now notice how then we end up with the message of rain coming here in the final verses of this chapter. It says, Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink. For there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Alright, so what's, what's Elijah saying? He's basically saying, go prepare a celebration. The idea of food and drink is a feast, a celebration. Why are we celebrating? Because after not having rain all this time, there's now going to be rain. So Elijah's saying, go and prepare a celebration because there's going to be rain. But then we see how Elijah prays. Elijah prays in uh, verses 42 and 44. It says, uh, But Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back seven times. And it came about at the seventh time he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, so that, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Interesting. Did God say it was going to rain? Yes. How many times did Elijah have to pray in order for it to start raining? At least seven times, right? Do, do we see the significance of that? There's a lot of things we're told to pray for. And sometimes we are so quick to give up on it, aren't we? Elijah has direct revelation from God that it's going to rain. He said it's going to rain. So can you see Elijah after praying the, the first time he sends the servant and the servant says, no, nothing. Can you see Elijah? <laughs> what? God said it was going to rain. 
But isn't that how we act sometimes? About our prayer requests and how we approach God? Elijah kept praying. Seven times he prayed. And finally, there's a little cloud as small as a man's hand. But yet, he knows this is the answer coming that rain is on its way. So the faith of Elijah, and again, we talked about it when we talked about James, but I think it bears reminding. We look at the Elijah situation and we say, well, he knew it was going to rain, therefore it was easy to pray for that and to be persistent about it. But do we not also have promises from God that are revelation to us? And, and we give up on praying? I love the, the Matthew 15. You know Matthew 15 and the, the Syrophoenician woman and how she approaches Jesus and he just ignores her at first. And then she continues to pray or ask him for the healing of her child. And, and, he, and he basically says it's not right to take the bread of the children and give it to the dogs. You remember that? I love that passage. Our modern sensibilities would be incredibly offended if that were us, right? He called me a dog. Well, his ministry was primarily to Israel, and the Gentiles were considered outsiders. But she has so much humility, and so much determination, and so much certainty, faith, that he is the only one able to help her, and that he will. That she keeps asking. And he says, finally, go thy way. Your prayer has been answered. Your daughter is healed. And he, she's praised because of her great faith. He says, great is your faith. Her faith caused her to persevere in prayer when she didn't hear anything. Her faith caused her to persevere when she felt like she might be insulted. She persevered. And we need to remember the same things, to persevere in prayer. To persevere in prayer. Elijah does that. There's an answer comes. Verses 45 and 46, basically Ahab and Elijah are leaving as the rain comes. It, it, we're told in 45 that Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So basically, it's, as I understand, about a 16-mile distance to Jezreel that Elijah ran um, and beat Ahab, who surely had some kind of animal or chariot or something to get him there. Um, so that was another miracle as well that God does there. But the point of this chapter, I think, is to understand that the Lord is the one and only true God, and He alone deserves our worship. We need to recognize as well, as we've seen these different ways God used different people, sometimes some of us will have a ministry that's more public and more visible, and, and many times we'll have a quiet, behind-the-scenes role that seems in our own eyes insignificant, yet God sees and God knows and has a purpose for us. We need to be faithful like Obadiah, behind the scenes, rescuing those prophets. And we need to trust the Lord and continue to pray and seek Him. Also, as we think about Elijah's challenge to the people of Israel, 
he calls for a focused serving of the Lord, not a divided opinion. You remember that when he says, he gauges Israel, if Baal's God, serve him. If the Lord's God, serve him. But don't be divided. We need to be singly focused on serving the Lord and honoring him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this passage, which is a great challenge to us, and we rejoice at your great display of power, and yet we know this is a small thing. You can do so much more. And we know you don't always work by, uh, and you don't uh, work with, with miracles in the same way in this day and age that you did then. But we also know you do work, and you do things providentially and sometimes you may even do uh, miracles of healing in subtle ways we, we thank you that you are active and at work in our world and in our lives help us to wholeheartedly trust you and serve you and help us to recognize our role might be small and insignificant in the eyes of mankind but you have purpose for every one of us and help us by your grace be faithful to that purpose and to be diligent and faithful and praying and seeking you and not being discouraged when we don't get answers right away. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen.